Is there a relationship between honesty and our perception or the way we talk about God? Our guest thinks there just might be a relationship. Stay tuned. Hello, this is Todd Littleton with ToddLittleton.net. You can also find us at thepastortheologian.net, thepastortheologian.com, all home of Pathological, a podcast for the pastor theologian. Anyone interested in the intersection between pastoring, pastoral ministry, pastoral work, and thinking or thoughts about God. Today on the podcast, I'm excited to have Jason Michelli. I've been reading Jason for a few years, and when I set out to refocus and renew the podcast and recalibrate everything, I knew I wanted to get Jason Michelli on, and we were able to make connection last week, and today I'm glad to give you uh, an opportunity to hear a young fellow who's had an interesting uh, last 12 months, to say the least, talk about the intersection of life, faith, and pastoring. So enjoy the podcast. And remember, when you do, share it with your friends. Today on the podcast, I'm excited to have uh, Jason Michelli. Um, I, I don't know why I haven't thought about this before. I've been uh, keeping track of uh, Jason's writing for, uh, well, since I was introduced to it. I think I was listening, um, Jason, to a homebrew podcast. You called in on the speak pipe, and I think that was the, it was the deep voice and that <laughs> something about homebrewed had tamed your Barty and brew. So I thought like, that uh, was. Yeah, that's funny. That was, uh, that was I've got to go listen. I've got to go see what this guy's up to and, and uh, do, do a little reading. So. Um, I know that there are, are a lot of folks who uh, will listen, and they won't know um, a UNC minister from uh, the East Coast. There's no reason they should. Uh, well, yeah, I, I, th- I think they should, but I just know that uh, some of my my uh, listeners are cloistered. You know, we Southern Baptists, <laughs> we Southern Baptists. Uh, you know, rarely get out much, and and so we certainly don't stretch much beyond our uh, our own, the boundaries of our own making. So, uh, uh, if you would just just tell how long have you been at Aldersgate and and uh, and Boy, in Oklahoma aren't all Methodist functional Southern Baptists anyway? Well, you know that's exactly what I've heard. I think that's it that way in Texas too. My okay. my, my mentor who uh, uh, was a uh, you know, revival preaching, 17, 18-year-old, was a Southern Baptist, uh, of, well, most of his life. And then I can't remember two, three, four years ago, he actually um, – he's actually become a, a Methodist minister in, in Texas, and he's under um, – oh, his – his region is is da- the Dallas area in Texas. Okay, and uh, that's been an interesting conversation he and I've had. He's about ten years older than I am, and and so uh, he uh, he kind of played in some denominational space and and that sort of thing. It led him to look for something different. So okay. that's that's where he ended up, <laughs> and so it, it is funny you say that. I, I uh, sometimes get asked a question about. You know these Methodists, and and uh, we have a large Methodist church in downtown Oklahoma City. And quite often, someone says, "Well, he sure sounds like a Baptist." <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's because I've, I've, yeah. One of my things has always been that, that I think growing up alongside Baptist churches in America formed Methodism more than 
John Wesley or the Anglican tradition did, but that's purely speculative on my part. So who knows? Well, I, th- I think there's, I think there's something to it. It, it is kind of funny. My, my grandfather was a Methodist, married my grandmother and they, they end up at a Baptist church, but he always told me there's no difference. So, uh, <laughs> that was, that was grandpa's. I know that's what most people in my churches think too. So, <laughs> Well, now, we could take this in a whole different direction than I thought about because um, there there are some differences. Baptists, uh, well, I guess it depends on where you are, I, you know. So, yeah, I really do think Baptists kind of kind of mark themselves, um, interestingly. Um, so how long, have, how long have you been at Aldersgate? Uh, this is my 11th year. Yeah. Well, and you, and you, you, uh, you came to Aldersgate from uh, – I know. I know you went to Princeton, right? Okay, so I feel yeah. So I uh, grew up in Virginia. Um, ended up going to seminary, Princeton. Uh, I had a little church outside of Princeton while I was a student there. Um, you know, one of these really tiny Methodist churches that probably should have been closed a long time ago, but instead they let me make all of my mistakes on them. <laughs> um, so I was there until I graduated, and then I went uh, and served a church in the Blue Ridge Mountains in Virginia for a couple of years. Um, and then the pastor at Aldersgate uh, invited me to come here and be his associate. Um, and he was actually the pastor who confirmed me when I was a teenager. Oh, wow. Great. Yeah, so it's it's a good story, and it's kind of unique in the Methodist system where we usually get sent by a bishop. Um so the idea of serving, serving alongside someone who kind of brought me into the faith initially, um, is is unique and rare and a gift. No doubt. Well, I, we I've known several of the Methodist ministers here in our small town. We're just outside of Oklahoma City, and the, I've been here, uh, be twenty two years this summer, and I I can't count uh, how many have been sent. Um always, you know, good folks, but it, it's been short term mm-hmm. for them. So, well, <clears throat> one of the things that I've uh, picked up from your writing that I wanted to talk about, because, you know, we tend to pristinate the faith. That is, we tend to kind of clean it up and it has to have a certain anesthesia to it so that we don't get ruffled by any of the more uh, human features of the the story of God in the scriptures, and yet you write with such uh, an honesty. And I just wondered: is is that was that birthed out of something? Is that just something about Jason? Is it is it something you think's? Where, where does that where where did that derive from? <sighs> See, I knew you were going to ask me this, and I said I'm not I'm not prepared. But you know, I I think it probably comes from. A couple of different places. I mean, I know part of me, I just do it to be contrarian. And I know that, you know, writing with honesty emotionally or physical honesties, that's something that can get church people's panties in a bunch. Um, So there's part of me that likes to do it just, you know, for shits and giggles. Um, You know, but I, I also think kind of on a personal level, I know my propensity is to lie Mm. or to wear a mask. Mm. Um, And I think I suspect um, a big part of that is from growing up in a 
a, a family where you know alcoholism was kind of the dominant theme for a number of years. Um, you know, and so when you when you grow up in that situation, you learn to walk on eggshells um, and to avoid truth telling. Hmm. And so I know I have that kind of in my relational DNA. Right. Um, and so sometimes I try to force myself to even exaggerate the honesty just because I know my tendency otherwise would be in the opposite direction. Hmm. Um, you know, that, that's me personally. I, I, I think, you know, theologically or just kind of more broadly, I, I think most Christians are functional docetists, you know? Right. Um, right. You know, that Jesus wasn't really human. And so we have to kind of hide our humanity, everything, you know, also. No doubt. Um, and so the, the way I understand my role as a pastor and a preacher, um, a spiritual director, if that sounds silly to me, but, um, you know, is if, you know, I'm ordained to be a vicar of Christ in my particular parish. And part of that I think is to model how to be as human as I believe Jesus was human. Um, and that doesn't mean to be exactly like Jesus, but to be, you know, who I think Jesus would be if he had my life. Yeah. Um, you know, and so that part of that is, is just revealing as much as I can. Um, and it's funny. I, so I haven't preached in like a year now, but so I'm preaching at this retirement home next week. And, and so I was just going to take the text from that coming Sunday. So I've been thinking about the transfiguration. Um, you know, and, and just yesterday I was reading, you know, second Corinthians where Paul kind of makes an oblique reference to it um, about us being unveiled. Yes. Um, you know, and the, the idea that, you know, it's by allowing Christ to unveil ourselves that we're transformed as Christ is on the mountain. Um, so there's something in, in that about revealing our, our warts, revealing, you know, our pain, our questions, um, our sins, yeah, you know, I think part of that to model what that unveiling looks like for people is important to me. Um, you know, and sometimes that that and it comes. So you have to like balance, you know, the need to do that um, as a model with the understanding that you're going to make mistakes doing it too. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah. So well, I mean, to be somewhere eleven years um, and have that as you not just a personal uh, feature, but um, uh, theological awareness. Um, h- how's that, how's that been received? I, I th- well, well, I, th- I think I got to the point where I was at this one place long enough where I just kind of realized, you know, hell, like I don't have to play the role of, you know, quote unquote pastor. Um, or, you know, fit into whatever model people bring with them, uh, of what I should be, that I could just be me and people, people liked it, liked me. Um, and that was kind of a surprise. Um, you know, cause I, I act like I'm full of myself, but, um, probably the opposite is the case. And so, so, so learning that I could be me and that would be received, um, well, and as a gift was, was news to me. Um, and I don't think I would have learned that if I had been 
anywhere else for like a shorter period of time that I needed the longevity uh, of one place and one, one, one job, uh, to learn that. Oh, I, I certainly think that is, that's an excellent reminder. I'm wondering, um, have you had the opportunity to kind of, um, have conversations with say younger ministers about this very issue and about, uh, you know, um, obviously maybe that they need to take some care with that, but have you, have you had, uh, occasions to, um, help them kind of think more, um, effectively about, uh, how, how to, how to approach, uh, honesty in, in their congregations? No, I haven't actually. Um, I haven't. I, I remember, and I probably should, because I remember when I was about to graduate, um, one of my mentors, uh, Bob Dykstra, who teaches at Princeton still, um, you know, he told me, because I was Methodist and everyone else was Presbyterian for the most part, you know, but he, he said that I should try to find an appointment um, where I could be there at least seven years, because um, he said it takes about five years for people to people in the church to let their guard down, um, you know, to, to unveil themselves. Um, and so, and that, that always stuck with me. And so I didn't end up here or I didn't come here thinking I would be here this long. Um, you know, but yeah, every year I, I meet with someone from the Bishop's cabinet to talk about, you know, the appointment season and all of that. And, and I have been pretty adamant that, it's more important to me to be in one place for a long enough period of time to make a difference than it to be, you know, in some sort of ideal quote unquote church. Um, but it's, yeah. So it was a conversation that was had with me. So it's a conversation that's worth having with other people, um, with other young clergy, I think. Um, no, I think yeah. so. I, what, what is, um, I, I'm, I'm just not terribly familiar. What is the normal? Like, so let's say you hadn't been insistent to, you know, want to be in a place where you could stay a while. What What, what is kind of an average tenure? Um, I, I think it's getting longer, but I think it's about four to five years. Four to five years um, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I probably shouldn't say this on anything that will be put posted on the internet, but you, you know, I mean, clergy do talk about it as moving up the ladder, which oh, is oh, just, right. which is just terrible. Um, and I know we all think that way, but to, to say it out loud kind of justifies it in a way that makes me uncomfortable. Um, but I think it's about four or five years. Yeah. Um, and, and it's a, my problem is, is that it's a process. You don't need to hear all this, but it's a process that consumes too much of the church, the larger church's time and energy. Right. right. Um, Cause that, that system of you know, that process of consultation starts, you know, in November and then kind of, preoccupies much of uh, the larger church's energies until the late spring uh, when all the appointments are made and ministers move. And so it's, it's a whole lot of time spent on moving. Yeah. I, I, I appreciate you describing that. I I really, I know that it it may seem awkward kind of describing the mechanics, but I really think that the the underlying theme uh, of uh, the depth of relationship cultivated over time is an important piece for, you know, pastors, for for lay folks to kind of grasp because it's instrumental, I think. And not just to complain. I mean, the the good thing about the system, I think, too, is that 
the fact that no one at Aldersgate hired me, um, you know, kind of for, so I think our system forces a relationship of trust if you give it enough time. Um, whereas, you know, if we were in a congregational setting where they could hire and fire at will, I mean, I, I mean, yeah, I, there, there have been plenty of times over the past 11 years that if you took a congregational vote about whether to move me or not, <laughs> the, yeah, I would have had my bags packed. So, <laughs> so I, I think our, our I, I suspect, out. I suspect that's everywhere. I, you know, even though I've been here a while, I suspect that there were moments where maybe I was even unaware that, uh, you know, in, in a Baptist meeting, anyone can make a motion, anyone can make a second, and it doesn't have to take a particular number of people so long as a meeting's been called to order, and you, it it can be ugly. So yeah, it's yeah, it's yeah. So it's so our, our system kind of forces uh, friendships to develop if if you give it time. I think sure, and and I think that gets you know it get gets back to kind of the issue of of honesty and and and. You know, not just you, but your writing, because it does seem to have uh, um, uh, a really deep thread in not just maybe you talking about yourself um, and whether it's in self-deprecation or it's hyperbole about how attractive you are, um, <laughs> you know, and those kinds. And I don't know if that's hyperbole. I've never met. So it, could, no. it could be you should be on the cover of GQ. I don't know. But 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 I, I think that. I think that that really is uh, – it seems to be, at least among young people, a pretty attractive um, – and, and not that we do things for that purpose or attraction, but it does seem to get the attention because I think they've lived in a in a, in a fairly plastic world where, as you mentioned earlier, we put on, we put on masks or we veil ourselves and we kind of hide. And, and yet, you know, the more younger folks – I'm, I'm, a, I'm a dad of a 30-year-old, uh, almost 31, and – and uh, 20, I better get this right, 27. Uh, oh, she listens to this. She'll kill me if I get that one wrong. But anyway, you know, they, they, they really, they have such an honesty about them, you know. Um, and, and, and then if you go up a generation, you know, it's, it's characteristically, there are things we don't talk about. And, uh, and so I think when we're talking about the scriptures, we're talking about faith, we're talking about life, and we're talking about those intersections. Uh, I, th- I think sometimes to the detriment, we've we've kind of covered up what could be very uh, not just revealing but healing. Yeah, I, I, I think I don't know if it's. I mean, there's a definite hunger I've sensed in. I know people my age and just younger people in the congregation that I've met and in the community that uh, there's a hunger for authenticity. And I think it's there's a hunger for authenticity that is larger than the Christian world. Um, you know, I think you just see that kind of culturally. Um, I mean, that, it, it's that's you know Wes Anderson movies. Um, yes. You know, I, I like irony, but but there's you know, an, a hunger for sincerity, um, and I don't think you can have sincerity generally. Um, you know, you, for something to be authentic, it needs to be specific. Um, and so I think that's what calls forth sort of, uh, a realness or, or an honesty and, and how, you know, we talk about ourselves. Um, cause I, you know, for me, I, I think that's what I kind of, that's what I react against in, 
in a lot of kind of contemporary Christian music and, and just the whole like Christian media stuff. Right. Um, cause there, plastic is a good word for it, but it, there's, there's a sheen to it. Um, that I know it doesn't match my life or my experience. And, and, you know, so it makes me suspicious that it matches anyone else's too. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, you said it better than I will. So I'll stop talking. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, I think, you know, so if we're going to talk honestly, we, we can't, we can't get on, you know, Skype here and, and chat without, um, talking about your honest, um, journey these last what six seven months is that have i got that right uh, it's been about a year actually oh, a year when you i i, I went back like to a... try to look and see when when you when you started kind of having those pains and then you went to the doctor i, I looked up last night I, I i couldn't i couldn't find that first one but yeah uh, it's it's it'll yeah i think it's going to be a year next week i think wow wow so, you know, normally in your course, probably up to that point, if you're like, if you're like, I'm going to say me and most, you, you know, it's not that you've not been exposed to suffering, to difficulty, uh, especially with, you know, parishioners and, and life events. But uh, when it comes home, when when it came to you in particular and I began to read um the way you were uh, writing about those events and experiences in, in relationship to faith and kind of some of the things you were, were learning was, were, were there one or two things that, that maybe really kind of uh, stuck out as, as uh, in that, you know, in those, la- in these last 12 months? Uh, like one moment? Sticks no, out th- like one theme, maybe um, I'm, I'm thinking maybe a theme, uh, you know, you, I, I loved your tattoo piece, you know, that was, that was really good. And yeah, uh, yeah, I guess, I mean, since we were just talking about honesty, I mean, I think, uh, once I found out, you know, that I had this cancer, um, and it's mantle cell lymphoma, if, if anyone listening right. knows what that is. So, you know, so I, you know, so I wake up in, in the hospital after surgery and I realize that, you know, not only do I have cancer, which I, I kind of already knew, um, and, you know, I have this incredibly rare cancer, um, you know, that, you know, a year ago I thought that there was a better than even chance it was going to kill me. Um, and I didn't, you know, I was unprepared, I think, to think through how I would handle that in front of a congregation um, that I felt because I've been here for so long and have so many friendships that I owed them some sort of communication, you know? And so I, so I I can remember sitting in the hospital room one evening and then weighing and making a very conscious decision that I was going to do as much of my cancer in front of people, hmm. um, you know, in, in a fishbowl, so to speak. Sure. Um, you know, and so, and there's not, you know, and so that doesn't mean I share everything. It doesn't mean that I don't still use hyperbole and exaggeration to make a point. Um, it doesn't mean, you know, that something still stay behind closed doors with my wife and me, but 
Uh, but I, you know, I made a very conscious decision that I was going, you know, in the same way that I, I'm supposed to model how to be faithful in any other kind of aspect of my life. I figured, you know, this is my circumstance now and I have to try to, what does it mean for me to be faithful in it and kind of model for others how to do it? Um, yeah, cause I, I remember, oh my gosh, like there was a week after my abdominal surgery where I was kind of recuperating before I started chemo and people would come by the house, um, you know, and, and they'd been directed to not, you know, come up to the door or anything and just leave it on the front stoop. But, you know, I could see them right there through the window. So I, I it felt weird to just ignore them. Um, and so I would go out and say hello to them and all. And, and that first week, everyone, the way they reacted to me, you know, I felt like I already had a body bag zipped up around, you know, my forehead. Right. Um, you know, but invariably, you know, what I realized was, is, was, you know, all of them were, you were grieving about what was happening to me, but all of them were also kind of reliving grief about cancer that they had never resolved themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, so one of the thing, one of the things that cancer has done is kind of thrust me into this community of fellow sufferers. Um, but it's also made me much more aware than I was as a pastor of how, uh, how much or the depth to which cancer affects people. Um, and, and how little healing is done kind of emotional healing that, especially among men, uh, you know, that's what I found. Um, so I, I thought, you know, if, if I can kind of write about my own experiences and help, people process what they've already been through too. Um, that, you know, I could at least be doing something useful because otherwise I was just sitting around feeling sorry for myself. Yeah. I actually, one of the things I clipped last night, uh, was, uh, I think it was your letter that you wrote to the church early on. And I think this is one of your paragraphs. I miss you all. I really do wish you could be there today to sell this to you. And don't sweat the God thing, people. Uh, please, I never believed before that God does mean-ass stuff like this to people, so I'm not hung up on God doing it to me. I don't believe there's any mysterious reason other than the chromosomal one that cancer, however rare, is happening to me. And I don't believe there's a bigger plan behind all this other than the same plan God has for all of us to love and glorify Him through Christ. i just got to figure out how to do that given my new circumstances. That's yeah. pretty powerful. Um, and, and certainly to those who, uh, like you just described, who had, um, maybe not fully kind of walked through or, or, or I don't, I don't like the word dealt with all the time, but, you know, kind of wrestle through the, the experience of grief that can be long and, and varied. And, and yet you right in there, you know, there's a lot of theology you, you, you offered there because it, it touches on, how, you know, the places people go for explanation and meaning and, and purpose and what's, what's what am I to make of it? And, and uh, I wondered how had you, have, have you had a conversation with maybe some of those fellow sufferers that that sort of spirit you wrote like right there, or that sort of kind of sense of, of your own awareness of these events in your life helped them? Yeah, I, I, it, it's... Yeah. Uh, so I, you know, so there's a friend in the congregation. His name is Brian. Um, 
and uh, we, we had become friends before I got sick. Um, but once I got sick, uh, I mean, he became something else entirely to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 I, and so I don't want to say that what I'm not saying is that his friendship isn't about me. Um, but I also know kind of the, the depth of feeling he has shown for me over the past year, um, has a lot to do also with, uh, the fact that his mom died of cancer. Mm. And so I I know, you know, a lot of the grief and the, the highs and the lows and everything that he was there to share with me, you know, he was reliving all of that, that he'd gone through with his mom too. Um, and so I think I, you know, me being healed has been healing for him. Sure. Sure. Well, and and for those of us who've been kind of following along, it's exciting as well. <clears throat> so, yeah, and it's and it's I, I I I don't know what it's like in a Baptist congregation, but you know, there for some people too, I, I became aware of how you know me being yeah. me me having this serious cancer was more of an existential crisis for them than it was for me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that maybe. Maybe if you ask them, they don't think, you know, that, you know, everything happens for a reason or or all of that. But they do think um, they do have sort of this unspoken assumption that pastors and priests, you know, have more of a connection with God or or would it, you know, that if there's any perks that go with the faith, you know, I have more of them. Um, And so that this could be happening to me you know, the guy who breaks the bread and, you know, changes the wine for them. Uh, So, so for, I, I, there are a lot of people I talked to where that became more of a existential crisis for them than it was for me. Um, and to kind of wrestle with that, not because I was wrestling with it as much as I was trying to do it for them. Right. Um, and, and it's really kind of that intersection that caught my, you know, the desire to kind of narrow the focus of my podcast deal. Mm-hmm. And, and that is that, you know, at some point a pastor's got to get, got to think of that, uh, what that intersection looks like. So whether or not it is a personal existential event, but, but can be understood as you describe it as someone in your congregations, you know, existential uh, moment, you still, you know, have to be thinking, you know, theologically about, okay, so, not that we're, you know, viewing the moment as a project to get someone to move to a better understanding of God, for instance, but in that moment when they have those questions, to have someone who can uh, express themselves honestly and then has a frame of reference to say, well, you know, that's bothering you, not me. And yeah. can we talk about can we talk about why that's bothering you? And in that moment, help them think a little bit bit better about things. Is is that fair to describe? I think so, and it's. I, I, I think I joked to someone, maybe at church, about how you know one of the difficult things about everyone knowing that you're a pastor and having cancer is that you know all of the medical staff that you interact with in all these places every day, um, you know, whether you know, I'm sure I'm projecting a lot onto them, but there was definitely a, a sense that they were watching to see how I handled this whole cancer thing, you know, kind of like I was Mother Teresa in an aquarium or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, and I don't think there's any one right way to do it, like 
to fight cancer as a Christian. But but knowing that I was being observed in that way kind of forced theological reflection upon me as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was much more cognizant, uh, or I forced myself to be more aware uh, of what I was thinking. Well, that that kind of provides a good move here because the other thing that you've you've been – I don't know – Again, I, I didn't go all the way back, but you've you've been writing a catechism. Yeah. And I don't know if I if I just have dreamed this or I kind of caught it as I was doing some skimming. I think in one place you said a catechism for tame cynics or mm-hmm. uh, and, and I and I thought that I th- I thought that, you know, theological reflection and these, you know, existential events and, and what and then getting something down. Um, tell us about what's what. What prompted you to to begin that process? I so one of the downsides of being in one location, you know, for a decade. Um, so you know, one of the great things is that you know some of the kids that I confirmed, you know, when they're in middle school, I'm now doing their weddings. Right. Um, so that's and for me, that's probably like the highlight of my ministry here is being able to see that kind of maturation of them. Um, but one of the struggles is to see people, you know, who've graduated and moved on, gone to college, whatnot, um, kind of writing off the faith, um, and doing so because they think that whatever answers we equipped them with in sixth grade and confirmation class are the only answers that the church has. Um, you know, and, and really it, it just, it pisses me off that people think a, they know what the church thinks about anything historically, <laughs> you know, and, 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 and be the, you know, the idea that like, you, I mean, you're, you know, like the, the propensity of people to write off church or dismiss faith or God or Christ, um, based on is really bad, ideas and knowledge or just a complete lack of knowledge. Um, and so, you know, like I just started, I found that I was like, I was continually telling students, you know, well, you don't know enough to say that you don't believe in God. Um, you know, you're not, you're not even prepared to even make a statement like that. Um, and so, so really the catechism started with me just being pissed off, uh, that these, you know, these young people <laughs> um, are, you know, are, are, are writing off the writing off the church's tradition as childish, um, and realizing too that you know my particular church we hadn't been doing as good a job as we could have uh, to prepare them, you know, was sort of a second confirmation or a, a, a further inoculation uh, to the secularism that was going to hit them once they left. Yeah, I, 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 I'm going to echo your observation over time that um, I, I too think that one of the joys and kind of fun things to get to do is, you know, when that, you know, nine or ten year old.
what were you doing? Yeah. You know, yeah. What, I mean, what, I, yeah, exactly. I, I don't want, you know, if people don't want to be Christian, that's fine. Sure. Um, you know, I, Jesus saved the world. I don't need to, but it's don't dismiss the church because you think we're stupid. Right. Uh, or, you know, that I'm just a shaman or that it's silly. Um, and, I, and I think part of it isn't there. I mean, I think the church is reaping, you know, just the turn to subjectivity that, you know, happens with Schleiermacher yes. in the modern movement. You know, I think we have so overvalued religious experience and, you know, Christianity is sort of emotional coping uh you know, and, and the pastoral, you know, nature of the faith that I, that I think we have um, left the intellectual heritage of the church behind. Um, and, but now, you know, I think, you know, and, and I think that's one of the reasons why catechesis is important too. you know, A, because, you know, we live in a world that does not share our values anymore. Um, and so it makes sense to catechize disciples in the same way that the first Christians did, you know, over and against the empire. Um, but, but I also, I also think, you know, we live in a world, you know, much like the world that Aquinas was in where, um, to be able to demonstrate kind of not that the faith is rational, but that it has rational implications, um, I think is needed today. Um, and so to, so to do that for people, um, and really to do it for myself too, um, I think is needed right now. Yeah, I agree. We had a, uh, uh, a fellow who, uh, was a, a pastor and, and now he, he's not, and, and would not self-identify as a Christian come do a, uh, a sort of a lecture on, on Islam. He teaches world religions at a couple of, uh, community colleges in, in the mm-hmm. metro area. <clears throat> And he made he made you know he was very gen- generous um, where he could probably have been you know unilaterally critical of, of religion. Um, he's been a religion reporter, writer, and that sort of thing for twenty years, and and so he knows not to do that. Uh, he made this interesting uh, statement uh, when asked uh, about concern over Islam in America, and he said this. He said America has its own religion. He delineated you know three. I don't. I don't want to call them reductionistic lines, but three very simple things that people would have identified, and and said so. Uh, just like Christianity uh, be- became something different than it was, Islam in America will too. Mm-hmm. And and I think you, that's kind of what you're describing that that uh, we've lost the, the sense of the the intellectual tradition, the thinking tradition of the church. We we come at it as though we have a historical um, amnesia, and um, it is disconcerting. So, um, your your uh, uh, catechism project uh, has actually kind of prompted me. I've talked to a couple of our guys on staff to say this is something we want to you know we need to do. Um, yeah, because it's yeah, I, I, like I know in like the Methodist Church, you know, the official confirmation materials, you know, overwhelmingly are about the history of John Wesley and what it means to be a member of our particular organization. And, you know, so 
you know, we haven't used those the, the whole time I've been here just because there's no, it, it presumes the content of the faith. Yes. You know, and so that, that isn't helpful. Um, you know, because I, I do think in the absence of any sort of, you know, intellectual structure to the faith, you're, you, you know, it leaves you captive to sentimentality. Yes. Um, either the sentimentality of the Christian faith or the, you know, the sentimentality of the culture at large. Um, and, you know, and honestly, when it comes to sentimentality, the, the culture at large is better at it. So, you know, I would choose that too. So, yes, 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 they are. Well, do you have, uh, how much longer do you have to go? Or you, is, is this kind of something that you're the, uh, what you've done to this point is, is kind of where you, where you are, or have you actually, have you got to end? Have you got to end for this? And are you going to then put it in, say, an ebook or a book? What you know? What what's your what's your plan with that? Uh, so, <laughs> you asking me about it makes me feel guilty that I, I've done such a bad job of staying with it. Um, so uh, yeah, I'm about halfway done. Okay. Uh, and what I've discovered too is, so I mapped out a whole bunch of questions uh, over a year ago, kind of modeled after the Catechism of the Catholic Church, but also like the Westminster Confession too. Sure. Um, you know, but one of the things I've discovered is, you know, trying to craft one response provokes another question. So, so the, right. the more I got at it, the more questions uh, that were coming up. Um, but I've, I've been neglectful about doing it this past year. And so it's, well, I mean, there's not, it's not without cause. So, <laughs> so I mean, you know, it's, it, I, I get that. I just, and I wasn't kind of questioning because it somehow stopped. I, I just hadn't gone back and read every piece. So I had, I just had, had read several along the way and just really thought that was inc- an incredibly good idea and project. And I just kind of wondered what fostered it and, you know, what your aim was. I, I think you ought to, you know, find a way to publish it. Uh, yeah, I, I, it's, so like, but I mean, I know I gave you one answer, but I remember one conversation I had with a high school student who who said he didn't believe in God and, and all of that, and 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 in those situations, like I think the biggest benefit a pastor can do is to not react as though that's a big deal, right? You know, to not take their doubt seriously enough, right? Um, you know, but. But behind all of that, I, I realized, I think, maybe for the first time, that when they say they don't believe in God, what they what they don't believe in is God with a little G, sure. uh, you know, who's just, you know, somewhere up there, you know, blessing and cursing people. Right. Um, you know, and so to unpack for people the idea, you know, that I got from Aquinas that, you know, God is just the name we give to the why is there something instead of nothing question. Um, you know, that to, to begin with that, you know, that there is something. So why is there, you know, and then to like work out from there, well, if there is something, you know, it's gratuitous and to go from gratuity to the idea of love and to go from the idea of love to what we see revealed in Christ, um, to kind of slowly unwind that, you know, that starting mystery of, of why is there something? Yes. And to show that, you know, you can come up with a different response, but Christianity's response isn't nonsense. Correct. And and, and I really liked um, what you said that hopefully someone won't just com- completely gloss because they liked another bit or better or whatever. But, but you, you said that when 
we pastors can be pretty dismissive of someone else's questions and doubts. Yeah. And so to not be, I think, is as good an admonition maybe as anything else you and I have spent a bit of time talking about because it's it's at that point that then uh, the willingness to take someone else's doubts and questions seriously gets back to what you uh, earlier were talking about, uh, sincerity and honesty. Yeah, I mean, it's... And, and I mean, there, and there's, there's a second naivete to all of it, but sure. it, I, I think it's, you know, on the one hand, I think it's, yeah, you, you have to model that, you know, I've had the same, you know, whatever's prompting these doubts or questions, you know, chances are I've, I've shared them too, or I will. Um, but also to, to, to kind of model that, you know, the faith is robust enough that I'm not threatened by any of your questions. Um, you know, th- that I share them, but that I'm also not threatened by them. Right. And, and what, and somewhere along the way, people picked up that they should be afraid of that. Yeah. 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 It, it is an odd response. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think, yeah, I mean, there's a dogmatism to the Christianity that's available to us, you know, on TV and, you know, in the news and whatnot that I think, Certainly that Christianity is afraid of questions and, and doubts. And so I think that's just what we communicate as the norm, even if it's not. Well, I, I agree. And now that translates into how we support our politicians. <laughs> that's always an, an exciting turn of events. I'm more so in Oklahoma than it is here, I'm sure. Oh, my land. That's a whole nother hour. Well, <clears throat> um, let, let's... Uh, let's do one last thing because uh, okay. I'm, because I'm really hopeful that um, we get to do this again down the road. Sure. Um, maybe like when the book comes out, we do a little uh, interview about uh, uh, a book, a humorous book on cancer. That's I'm sure Tony would like that. Kinda, so. you know, I'm, I'm, yeah, I know. I'm, I know he would too, but I, I thought maybe um, <clears throat> you could, if, if you didn't mind, could you sketch just a little bit about what you're doing in that book so that maybe we could kind of encourage some folks to keep an eye out for it when it when it uh, drops? Uh, so the working title is Cancer is Funny, Keeping the Faith in Stage Serious Cancer. That was a title given to me by Tony. Okay. So it might change. Um, so uh, it kind of follows – it follows the arc of, of the postings that I've done on. So I, I begin with, you know, learning that I have it, um, realizing that the side effects, you know, of chemo are more than just what happens to my body, but kind of what happens to me spiritually and, you know, the side effects I provoke in other people by having cancer, mm-hmm. um, going through the low points, um, kind of hitting bottom and then, kind of emerging, emerging from this phase of it, at least, uh, this fall. So yeah, I I had this like cheeky idea to frame it around the stages of grief. Um, but that just seemed forced and I, I couldn't really do it. And so it's, um, and everything would seem too episodic, I think. So, so it, it, it's, it's just chronological, um, Using, I mean, a lot of the stuff that I've, I've shared on the blog, um, you know, is, is the springboard. Right. So uh, I try to be honest. I try to be funny. Um, I try to not be overly theological, but uh, worthwhile. 
Well, to anyone listening, when Jason says he tries to be funny, I assure you he will be. <laughs> so um, uh, I'll, we'll keep uh, listening. Yeah, I mean, anyone listening to me now would be like, he doesn't sound very funny. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll keep uh, listeners alert and aware so that we can encourage him to get a copy of, of your book. I'm always better in text than I am in person. That's just well, the heart of being a preacher. Yeah, we... We pastors have these odd lots about us, just just the way we are. Um, <clears throat> I think I think I want to finish with one one thing that that um, uh, I mentioned before we hit record, and, and that is one of your pieces um, when you were were talking about um, how your your wife showed up. Um, you know, uh, trip. And I were having a conversation one time, and he was talking about his premarital counseling and such, and and he had this very shorthand uh, description uh, that I think you either echoed or maybe even said exactly the same that uh, you know uh, love shows up, and um, and so of course in the context you were writing about and very very uh, deeply about. Um, all the, all the decisions you don't know you're making when you say I do, yeah. And and I I, I and, and I think that that seems to be a character of of what you're describing, not just about that learning moment where I never imagined this and she still showed up, but you, you've described your own relationship and commitment to Aldersgate, theirs to you yours to young people and yours to the faith. And I think that that ought to be something that someone kind of draws out as well. Uh, mm. if, if they listen that, that you're, you're giving a, another illustration of showing up uh, and, and in, in a world where we desperately need to take the incarnation seriously, uh, where they see Jesus showing up in this form or that, uh, I think that stands as a, as a great witness to bear to, the faith you talk about week in and week out, and you will on Sunday with those uh, folks at that uh, home. Yeah, I think there's so over the years I've become pen pals with Thomas Lynch, who's an undertaker and poet, and you know, and, and he talks about you know just the heroism of the people who show up yeah. when death happens. Um, and I mean, I, I you know, so I mean, my blog's titled "Tame Cynic" for a reason. So, I, yeah, I'm snarky, I'm cynical, I'm very anti-institutional, even still. Um, you know, oftentimes I'm the last person who would ever want to be caught dead in a church. You know, I don't want church to be made up of church people. All, all those kinds of complaints. Sure. Um, you know, but but this 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 experience that I've had with cancer this last year has kind of shown me you know, what Lynch talks about in terms of just the heroism of the people who show up, um, you know, and I think I wrote a post about just, you know, that for all the other crap that happens in church, you know, church people, you know, when they ask, how are you, they actually stop and wait for a response. Um, you know, and that's a small thing, but it's no small thing. So. Yep. And a world that moves by as quickly. It is no small thing. Yeah. Especially. Yeah. And yeah. Exactly. Well, if if uh, you were uh, 
anticipating kind of what we might talk about and you kind of had in your mind, well, a wonderful kind of run this way or that is, is there something that you would have wanted to kind of uh, bring up or um, offer uh, to someone who might, might listen and be thinking about what about that intersection between, um, you know, pastoring and, and uh, um, practicing. So theology and, and the practice of, of, of what you do as a pastor. I don't know. You told me you were going to ask me about suffering, so I was all nervous about having to talk about suffering and well, having having some sort of revelatory statement about that. But <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I uh, I I think that uh, um, maybe in in some way, then what we could say, maybe together, if if this fits, that. Um, there's a lot of suffering that goes on in the world, and when we can learn uh, who our fellow sufferers are, uh, we get to, you know, find in that moment uh, an occasion to know that that God showed up, and uh, and and so maybe that's that's a succinctly way of putting I think what I hear you describing uh, along the way. Yeah, I, I think. To show love towards the sufferer and to know that, you know, I think, what is it? Um, David Hart was one of my teachers, and I, he's got some line about, you know, what Christians should adopt is the, you know, a posture of hatred towards suffering. Mm. Wow. You know, there and that's, yeah, and that, that, I mean, I didn't want to cue up this conversation necessarily, but it, it's, um, that to 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 know that suffering can prove to be a good without calling into question the goodness of God. Right. That's you know that, that's a tightrope to walk. Um, it is, but you but you know it reminds me of something Father Rohr says, and um, and he he has not endured stage serious cancer, but he's just recently discovered he had prostate cancer and. Mm. Um, He's a line he's always oft repeated is without great suffering there can't be great love. So he's trying to tightrope that line as well. But he there's something that he says in that that resonates with what you're describing. Yeah, it's it's very like I don't know. It's it's important to me to be able to say that God doesn't use suffering. Yes, absolutely. Uh, That God in no way commerces in pain or evil. Um, you know, and so, and that determines how I understand the cross then too, but absolutely to, to know that, you know, you know, suffer, my suffering has been beneficial just in the sense that it, you know, it, it's knocked some of my pretenses down and forced me to depend upon other people. And, and so in, in that sense, it's made me in a position to become closer to God, but that doesn't mean that any of that was caused by God. Um, you know, that's probably in, in all of this experience I've had this past year, keep, keeping that distinction, um, personally and, and in front of other people has been probably the most important thing for me. Well, I don't, I don't know a better description to, uh, use to kind of draw our, our hour to close. I, I, I'm hopeful that, that, uh, that is exactly what more and more of us will do. Cool. Hey, uh, Jason, it's been so good. 
uh, oh, no, yeah. to, to chat. And uh, again, thank you for your willingness. And uh, I'm hopeful that in the coming year, I know you're you're starting up again. What uh, next week? Next week. And so I'm excited about that, and, uh, and to see where that goes with you, and maybe to kind of tug at you if you're going to kind of get your own podcast back up and rolling. I'll. You know, I'll, I'll be your first resubscriber, so uh, <laughs> get after that. and I'll, I'll put you in the queue and do it, do it. give you a call. Yeah. Well, all right, man. I want to say a great big thank you. And no, thank you. I'll, I'll ping you when uh, I see the book coming out, and, and maybe we'll do it again. Okay. Thanks, Todd. All right. Thank you. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening. And remember, give us a rating on iTunes or Stitcher. Remember to share with your friends. Remember, you can find us at ToddLittleton.net, home of Pathological, podcast for the pastor theologian, and anyone interested in the intersection between pastoring and thinking about God.